We seek to tame the wild, to rid ourselves of the fear of the unknown. What oppressive force seeks to tame us, I wonder? Do they fear us as we fear them? Will they, someday? Should they? There are incredible things to be seen against the backdrop of the unexplainable, phenomena experienced only by the bold. Courage is the mark of the great explorer and recklessness, the fast companion of our own mortality. Tonight, let's hope we're courageous. I'm Jack Jensen, and you're listening to The Paradox Signal. Transmission 102, Wish Granted. Welcome back, travelers, to another broadcast of The Paradox Signal. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Jensen, and tonight we have some interesting field notes to review. Before I get too far, though, I have some brief housekeeping. I wanted to share a little more about the Paradox Signal itself and how I'm getting you these transmissions in the first place. It's important to consider the source of any finding, after all, so I think transparency is the least I can provide to you. For the broadcast itself, I'm utilizing what might be considered... Well, it's effectively the same setup used by the old pirate radio stations in the 60s and 70s, but slightly modernized. I push my live feed from a laptop through a series of converters and into a small broadcast antenna I've affixed to the roof of my cabin. Radio Caroline would be proud to see how easy it is to acquire this equipment nowadays. A series of solar panels charges a battery rack that fuels the whole contraption, and as a backup, I've rigged a converter from my 4x4 in the event we have a series of cloudy days. Thanks to some... We'll call it innovative repair work. Our imaginations can run wild in the same space, liminal and free of the confinement of routine for at least the brief period we spend together. In a still fluid culture that is largely designed and created of our own manipulation, I find the need for escapism to be exceedingly ironic, as though we imagined things wrong and brought them to fruition, so now we seek to go back to the drawing board and imagine them again. Daydreams upon daydreams, always seeking the outlier. On to the findings. Transmission 102, Day. I saw what I think was a large bird yesterday. In and of itself, that fact may seem unremarkable. I see flying creatures of every disposition during the day out here, into the evening as well, but until yesterday, when I saw something streak through the sky or nestle into the gaps between crowning branches, at least while the sun was out, I was certain it was a bird. I could see the feathers, the wings, occasionally a crest or a brightly mismatched beak. This thing yesterday, though... I am only willing to say that I think it was a large bird, because I'm not sure what else it could have been. My words and my senses leave me wanting once again, reminding me that I am a foreigner in a world of sensations that my specific physical form just wasn't built to interpret and is barely capable of perceiving at all. 
I have routinely been hiking the trails to the northwest of the cabin in an effort to get closer to the ridge I mentioned in my previous broadcast. As much as I hoped to find some snaking path leading directly to that coveted lookout perch, I have had no such luck. The prospect of scaling the hillside with its treacherous gravel beds and muddy slopes has led me to reconsider whether I would like to reach that hillside badly enough to risk life and limb for it. What humanity has done for knowledge pales in comparison to the simple risks I might take climbing a hill, I just... Something deters me. Fear, probably. Or... Sanity. It would seem foolhardy to feel anything else when facing the reality of the... Communications I've received already. In the meantime, I continue to map and catalog the trails themselves, as well as any unique features I discover. Noteworthy rocks or suspicious-looking moss. I had not thought that moss could look suspicious, but after some time in these specific woods, the suspicion I am willing to cast on even the most boring feature is growing by the day. As I crept slowly along the trail, careful of the serpentine roots that protrude without warning like traps laid by the land itself, I noticed movement in the highest branches of a nearby oak. Thinking that the silhouette I could see shuffling amidst the leaves might be some small climbing mammal or a large bird of some kind, I wanted a closer look. We always want a closer look. My target had perched in one of the foundation trees in this particular patch of land, and it was easy to follow the branches down into the trunk of this deciduous behemoth. I replayed what I had glimpsed from the trail several times as I walked. I had to be careful not to disturb the veritable carpet of fungi that existed off the trails in this area as I hiked deeper through the thick growth. The floor of this wilderness is covered in things born of death itself. What I could swear I had seen didn't make sense, so I resolved to glimpse the thing again. I had seen it land, I had seen its silhouette against the sky amidst the now yellowing leaves of autumn, but I had not seen... I was not sure if I had seen the branches themselves stir at all under the comfortable weight of their visitor. I arrived at the trunk of the tree and was disarmed when I gazed upwards towards the sky and where I thought that creature had been in relation to where I was now. There was a silhouette and I could see it moving. It was vaguely avian, but I cannot describe its color or its specific shape or breed because I still couldn't see it. I was staring right at this creature, albeit from at least a hundred feet beneath it, and I could not perceive any details to catalog for my report, regardless of the insidiousness of the sheer size of the thing above me. I sat down, then leaning against the tree, and stared. Unsure, necessarily, of how to process what I was not seeing. Even the outline of the silhouette was not sharp. It had a haze to it, like heat rising off the sun-baked desert sands or the way the whole world looks through an icy window pane. A 
badly rendered facsimile of a bird with the clarity of static and the texture of a stained glass mosaic now sat calmly above me, calmly doing bird-like things. And I was right about the stillness of the leaves. I could see it preening or scanning around perhaps, but I could not see more than the vague shape of a winged creature there moving absent-mindedly just outside my ability to perceive the details I was now beginning to maddeningly crave. This bird was making me angry in its partial absence from my world, and yet I could not stop looking. As it made these hidden movements utterly arbitrary and normal in comparison to the fact that I couldn't see the damn thing, it finally occurred to me that the leaves sprouting from the branch it rested on didn't so much as twitch. It could be that it was so deftly avoiding touching any of the crowding foliage that it just had no discernible effect, but I have watched the birds in these woods for weeks now. This was not like them. As I gazed at the shape, the watery obfuscation where its eyes and beak and such should be turned towards me, I think. Even without seeing its eyes through the distortion, though, I could feel it notice me. That sounds incidental. It wasn't that. I could feel it become aware of me acutely. I never felt hunted by the thing in our momentary stare, but seen, recognized. It remained still as its not eyes held fixed towards me and the sun's glare off the foggy silhouette shined brightly enough to make me blink back and turn away briefly. I quickly looked back, my eyes fixed to the living mirage, and I saw it take flight. Beautiful, graceful, and utterly silent. Without so much as a shudder from the limb it fled from, four wings spread from the thing's glossy borders, still obscured in their detail even with the benefit of motion lending clarity to their function. Four enormous wings. The span of them was at least twice the size of the largest bird I had seen in these woods so far, giving it a rough wingspan of around maybe 15 feet. The beating of four massive wings, each longer than I am tall, should produce a sound. It should sweep the leaves into great whirling columns and shake every limb beneath it and send dust out in billowing waves, but it did not. No sound at all. No movement. No rustling. Not even so much as a ripple across the small pool of standing water in the hollow of the great oak roots to my left. But I felt it. I felt the gusts of beating wind across my face where the creature had been. I felt it dishevel my hair and beard like a powerful squall that was my secret alone to keep from the trees, and my skin covered with the prickling sensation of goosebumps as the sweat on my arms and neck quickly evaporated. I felt the silent bird, 
I felt it take flight. I could feel something that the leaves could not. I can feel many things the leaves cannot. There are things I won't hear in this place and things I was not meant to see, but God, I can feel. We can feel so, so much. Transmission 102, Archival Reference, The Mythology and Fossil Record of Winged Creatures. Given recent events, I thought it relevant to tap into the wealth of knowledge that exists regarding large flying creatures in both mythology and the known fossil record. Famously, in North America, the creature known as the Thunderbird exists in numerous native cultural spheres. The Ojibwe, the Menominee, and the Algonquian cultures all have a Thunderbird tale, which share several traits in common. They describe a large flying bird with wings so enormous that their flapping causes thunder. They are variously described as having lightning that flowers from their eyes or casting lightning down to the earth beneath them as a means of attack. They are, in these instances, often associated with defending the quote-unquote upper world against the underwater spirits and the underworld of the respective cosmologies. The Great Horned Serpent of many Native American religious traditions is often proposed as a direct antithesis to and enemy of the Thunderbird. The creature's presence itself was also often seen as a precognitive warning or chance divination to the cultures that grew up with stories of great lightning-riddled sky beasts. The Ho-Chunk people believe that a man who sights a thunderbird during a period of fasting and isolation is destined to become a war chief. So pervasive is the indigenous North American belief in the Thunderbird and its symbolism that several representatives of the First Nations involved in the Great Peace of Montreal, a treaty signed between 39 First Nations and New France in 1701, incorporated the Thunderbird into their personal signature. The most famous non-native sighting associated with the Thunderbird, or more accurately, of the now far greater group of cryptozoological reports that have been amateurly classified under this umbrella, took place in 1890. A pair of genuine cowboys in Arizona are alleged to not only have sighted a large featherless bird with the head of an alligator and a wingspan exceeding 20 feet, but to have shot and killed it, bringing it back to town for examination. Of course, no photographs of the creature exist that have not been debunked as forgeries, such as the Tombstone Thunderbird, and no follow-up reporting was done in any local newspaper of the time. An unlikely occurrence if their story had been completely accurate and the pterosaur-like description of the creature does not match local indigenous depictions either. There are, of course, flying creatures present throughout the Americas and beyond in various cultural settings dating back to antiquity, ranging broadly in their direct resemblance to what we would traditionally call a bird. There is the shared Garuda of Hindu and Buddhist lore, the well-known Phoenix of various European mythologies, the Slavic Firebird, which functions as a portent and a warning. The list is far too large to try and encompass here in this reference, but it is worth bringing up Quetzalcoatl. 
if for no other reason than its prehistoric namesake. Quetzalcoatl is the feathered serpent deity of Mesoamerican cultures that spread widely in the late Classic period of the Maya, but can be identified in art as early as the late pre-Classic Mesoamerican period. This feathered serpent god, whose name allegorically can be interpreted as wisest of men, lends its name to the Quetzalcoatlus, an unfathomably large species of very real pterosaur whose fossils were originally found in Texas in the early 1970s and dated to the late Cretaceous period around 68 million years ago. Long before our ancestors had considered walking on two legs, Hell, at that point in history, we didn't even need vitamin C in our diets yet because the haplorhini divergence and subsequent speciation likely hadn't occurred yet. With a standing height of around 10 feet, the Quetzalcoatlus towered over any living mammal at the time without even taking to the skies, and indeed no primate would ever come near to its stature. With a wingspan of minimally 36 feet, the Quetzalcoatlus was roughly the size of a Cessna 172 in flight. The fossil record doesn't only fascinate with examples of daunting size, though. There is a small genus of Paravian dinosaurs, bipedal theropod dinosaurs with feathers whose descendants would eventually include modern birds, called the Microraptors. The Microraptors were not impressive for their weight or wingspan. Most would have been roughly three feet in length from beak to tail at most. No. What fascinates me about this little 120 million year old marvel is that modern research suggests they had long, flight-capable feathers across all four of their limbs. And after much debate, it is believed they were likely possessed of all the features, such as vertical rotation range in the shoulder joints and feathers anchored strongly to bone, that suggest powered flight. This research has led some scientists to theorize that all birds may have undergone a four-winged evolutionary period before the recognizably modern four-limb-focused flight became the evolutionarily dominant result. Biology figured out tandem wing flight over a hundred million years before the first human had a dream that they were falling. Time, necessity, and the process of adaptation and natural selection. These are our greatest engineers. Transmission 102, Night. As the nights grow long and the chill of fall splits the air, I can't help but turn skyward and gaze upon the stars. It was several nights ago when I was doing precisely this that I encountered what I can best describe as a strange, extremely localized meteorological phenomena. I had hiked during the day and brought my telescope into a wide clearing several miles from the cabin that is reminiscent of the few remaining pockets of eastern savannah throughout the southeast. Pale grasses, about knee-high, provide little cover from the wind, but the sparse, narrow, longleaf pines give the most unobstructed view of the sky. Without a canopy to shield you from the vast dark of the infinite sky, it is impossible to feel more important than the stars upon which you gaze. 
As I settled in for a relaxing evening, thermos and hiking pack nestled appropriately near my folding seat, I was looking through the eyepiece of my classic Scully and Scully that was gifted to me by one of my mentors. Given the things I've experienced in the evenings out here, I found it reasonable to pause every few minutes as I focused, or cleaned some lens or another, so as to take a survey of my surroundings. The benefits of an open grassland are that large creatures can't appear quite so suddenly from the shrouded darkness of the fully forested backdrop, at least. Around an hour passed without anything of note when I noticed the temperature dropping quite suddenly. The wind amplified the sharpness of the chill then, and I pulled my admittedly light jacket tight around my body. I had not prepared for an ambush from winter, just an easy night of sky watching. As the weather continued to worsen over the next several minutes, I noticed that for approximately 20 feet in every direction from my telescope, in a perfectly prescribed circle with my position at the center, there were small ice crystals taking shape on the individual blades of grass. It was much too early in the season for a natural freeze. It had been so mild just moments ago, and there were no clouds or anything to signal the source of this. I hastily gathered the minimal equipment I had brought, deciding that I needed to make my way back to the cabin, or at the very least, outside of this house-sized weather anomaly. The cold was growing by the moment, and I was quickly beginning to feel the slight numbness in my lips and the tip of my nose. If this cold was going to last much longer, certainly I would not. I reached the edge of where I could see the frost building on the ground around me, yearning for the perfectly normal if slightly damp ground beyond, and I stopped short abruptly. Not because I wanted to. I did not want to. I did not want to be cold anymore. But there was something that made me stop. Something that made me not leave that space, that circle. I am disinclined to make comparisons to containment fields and force screens and summoning circles and other such invisible barriers of the imagination, but I am absent of sound reasons that my body would not take another step. I cannot control the weather. I cannot control the other creatures sharing the forest with me. I cannot even always control my thoughts, but my steps, my physical form, neuron to synapse to electrical impulse to force to work to motion. I do not like that I could not take another step. I felt the ground shudder beneath me. Or perhaps it was my legs that shook, in hindsight. I collapsed to my knees, and as the exposed skin of my hands brushed against the small flakes of ice, I felt a burning sensation travel rapidly up my arm and into my chest where it grabbed hold. Like the pins and needles of an extremity not wholly felt passing through my body. Perhaps this pain broke whatever mental block I was experiencing because at that moment my body finally succumbed to the gnawing desire to flee this space and I crawled beyond the borders of this hellish cold. It stopped shortly thereafter. The ice melted 
the air warmed. I had no surety I had even truly experienced it, save, of course, for the damaged glass in my telescope. The rapid pressure change had produced veining spider cracks throughout the internal lenses. The range of my vision had been reduced, but at least I hadn't dreamt it. I walked home that evening, carefully, with the regular sound of the chorus from the ravine keeping me company when it dawned on me I still had not properly captured that sound. I do not know if any of the things I am experiencing are related, but at the very least they coexist. The constant nature of the chorus makes it not only unique, but a willing target for my energy when I am frustrated at how quickly these other incidences retreat from observation. I have modified several of my audio capture devices, including a parabolic microphone, to try and get a live feed of the chorus onto the broadcast since capturing a recording didn't seem to work. The only downside is that I need to go outside so it's unobstructed. I'm going to step away from the broadcast deck for just a moment, as the vibration seems to be stronger than usual tonight, and attempt to share the sound of the nightly chorus with you. Here goes. Oh, right. I suppose I can speak into this as well. Probably not a great idea though. Let me, um, let me tune it and see if I can pick up the chorus. Just a second. Well, that seems to have been a disappointment. I don't see any audio records in my playback loop on the deck for the time I was broadcasting from the modified field mic. I'm sorry for the dead air, listeners. Whatever that sound is, trying to capture it seems to have done a number on the impromptu microphone setup. The element actually became so warm in my hand that it seems to have left a small burn on my index finger. A slight perfectly circular burn with a void in the center. Nothing serious, but short one more piece of equipment for the time being. Cold from nowhere, heat from sound, creatures without noise, and eyes that give no sight. Unexpected obstacles, no doubt, but 
no problem is without a solution. I have so much work ahead of me to try and make sense of anything out here. So many things to explore. Well, let us be courageous then, together. Stay safe, listeners. Transmission ending. Signal out in three, two, Paradox Signal is a Team Dynamite production. Transmission 102, Wish Granted, was written and produced by Alexander Craddock. The voice of Dr. Jack Jensen is Alexander Craddock. For more information on the Paradox Signal or to make a donation and support the production, please visit www.theparadoxsignal.com or follow at the Paradox Signal on Instagram. To learn more about other Team Dynamite productions, please visit www.goteamdynamite.com. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes as well. And remember, you're worth being discovered in the woods at night, too. <laughs>